From the state capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capital Report. Lawmakers soon return to Tallahassee to tackle a potential property insurance meltdown. But will they be able to fix the problem? Nothing is going to change immediately. In fact, we anticipate rates for Florida homeowners will continue to increase. Also this week, could the Florida legislature move to further restrict abortion when lawmakers gather in 2023? Some people think they should. Well, I actually was one of those babies. My uh, father had to go to the hospital and decide which one was going to live. We'll also see how the Deepwater Horizon oil spill is still impacting sea life in the Gulf of Mexico more than 20 years after the fact. And we'll find at least some of the younger members of the Seminole tribe are eager to share their rich and unique heritage with the outside world. I'm Tom Flanagan. This is Capital Report. Florida lawmakers are meeting in Tallahassee in a couple of weeks to work on the state's crippled property insurance market which took another blow after Hurricane Ian destroyed thousands of homes in September. As insurers leave the market, homeowners are paying more for coverage. Valerie Crowder has more on what lawmakers might do. No draft legislation has been filed ahead of the upcoming session, but new GOP House Speaker Paul Renner recently offered reporters a few clues about what lawmakers might do to stabilize the state's property insurance market. I think we're going to look at the kitchen sink, frankly, of options and look forward to hearing from all of the members in the House as well as the Senate. And once we do that, it's important for uh, people listening to know that that will not result in an overnight drop in insurance rates. Renner says any measures lawmakers pass won't drive down rates for at least a couple of years. He says the Republican supermajority in the legislature will also face tough choices when it comes to putting more public dollars into reinsurance, which insurers rely on to cover their losses. When you have a market that is challenged, I think it's fair to say, you have to consider things that I, as a conservative, would not wish to do, which is put up some of our reserves to backstop the private market. And the situation is dire. Six private insurance companies have left the state so far this year, and more than a couple dozen others are on the brink of running out of funds. The Insurance Information Institute is a nonprofit that researches industry trends. The Institute's Florida spokesman Mark Friedlander says the average price of premiums in the state went up by 33 percent this year, and that number is expected to rise to above 40 percent next year. And there's a variety of factors there, the continuing issues of litigation abuse and roof claim abuse combined with hurricane Ian losses combined with the higher cost of reinsurance. Data from the state's Office of Insurance Regulation shows 76 percent of the nation's homeowners lawsuits against insurance companies are filed in Florida. Yet the state accounts for 8 percent of all claims in the U.S. Friedlander says the insurance industry wants lawmakers to end what's known as one-way attorney's fees, which property insurance companies are required to pay anytime they lose their case. And Florida is very liberal when it comes to those fees compared to other states. So as a result, once again, it's an incentive to sue insurers, which we don't have in other states because of much stricter regulations. Friedlander says last year there were 116,000 lawsuits filed in Florida against insurers. That estimate for this year was 130,000, but that was before Hurricane Ian. 
Friedlander says with so many lawsuits in the pipeline, the market is unlikely to stabilize anytime soon. Any changes in the laws will not impact any lawsuits that have already been filed. So you've got to work your way through the system. Sometimes lawsuits could take several years to play out in the court system. So nothing is going to change immediately. In fact, we anticipate rates for Florida homeowners will continue to increase into the coming year. House Speaker Renner recently told reporters lawmakers could consider ending one-way attorney's fees when they meet later this month. Yeah, I mentioned the kitchen sink. That's that's in the sink of uh, things we're going to discuss. I don't think any decisions have been made, but it's certainly one that people point to as Florida being a bit of an outlier in, in how we operate. Another big issue lawmakers could address is the growing number of homeowners getting their coverage through the state-backed insurer of last resort. Citizens Property Insurance Corporation has been growing at a rapid pace as rates go up in the private market. Former state senator Jeff Brandis has been a major champion for property insurance reform for years. The big problem Citizens has is that it's a predatory competitor. Their prices are not set by actuaries, they're set by politicians. Brandis says citizens' rates generally range from between 30 and 50 percent below market value, depending on where a piece of property sits. He says capping the rapid growth of new citizens' policies is among the issues that lawmakers must address to help the market. Brandis was in office when lawmakers met earlier this year with the goal of fixing the insurance market. He says they fell short. They frankly didn't do enough. They, they knew what they needed to do. But they were unwilling, to, because of politics and because of an election year, to do the things necessary in order to truly fix the market. They no longer have that option to wait and to punt. They have kicked the can so far down the road, we're out of road. And Brandis says the problem is so big and so complex that he doubts lawmakers will have time to fully address it during the upcoming week-long special session. But I just don't know that the legislature is going to be able to tackle all of these things in one week in a way that they need to. It, it, there, there's just so much. This is the challenge is, you know, this this patient is very sick and needs multiple surgeries in order to, to survive. Brandis says he wouldn't be surprised if lawmakers try to tackle the biggest issues later this month, but he says they'll need to follow up with more solutions when they meet again in March for the 60-day regular session. I'm Valerie Crowder. After Republicans won a supermajority in the Florida legislature in the November elections, some conservative groups hoped that might open the door to passing further restrictions on abortion. But Regan McCarthy reports as the state's new leaders met for a recent organizational session, abortion legislation was not named among their top priorities. I am here to uh, show our senators and our representatives that um, they need to do something about abortion and, and that it shouldn't be legal. It's a child's right to be born. Diane Knight traveled from St. Cloud to join a group of protesters during the organizational session calling for greater restrictions on abortion access as they chanted outside the Senate chambers and later in the Capitol courtyard. Knight wants to see a full ban that would make no exceptions for cases of rape, incest, or even the health of the pregnant person. Well, I actually was one of those babies. My uh, father had to go to the hospital and decide which one was going to live, her or me, and he said, they're both going to live, you're going to do your best. 
Um, so I think that that is something totally God. Um, and that's where it needs to stay. But in the Senate chambers, the tone was different. New Senate President Kathleen Pazadomo said she had not even realized the protesters were outside. I was so wrapped up in what was going on and so nervous and whatever, I, I, I found out that they were here afterwards. Some lawmakers have suggested reducing the 15-week abortion ban passed last session to a 12-week ban. Pasadomo has said she's not opposed, but despite the push from activists, she says she doesn't expect much movement on abortion legislation anytime soon. Well, until the Supreme Court weighs in on the 15 weeks, there's really not much that we can do. You know, everybody knows my position on the exception for rape and incest. I wanted to get that in the bill. Well, when we did the 15 weeks, it didn't get in the bill. But there's really nothing to do until the Supreme Court rules. New House Speaker Paul Renner acknowledges there's now a pro-life majority in the legislature, but... I can guarantee you that members on both sides have very different opinions about what it means to be pro-life. Florida passed a law last session that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. It makes no exceptions for rape and incest, but does make exceptions for when the person's life is in danger or in the case of certain fatal fetal abnormalities. That law is facing a challenge before the state Supreme Court. Florida justices have found in the past that a part of the state constitution that protects a person's right to privacy protects their right to seek an abortion before viability. Some expect the new, more conservative justices now on the bench to overturn that finding. I'm Regan McCarthy. A federal courtroom in Tallahassee this week served as the arena in which suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren continued a bid to get his job back after his controversial shelving by Governor Ron DeSantis, DeSantis accusing the prosecutor of incompetence and willful defiance of his duties, issued an executive order on August 4th suspending Warren, a twice-elected Democrat. The order pointed to a letter Warren signed pledging to avoid enforcing a new law preventing abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle, who heard the case, said he may not have time before December 19th to fully delve into the allegations that the governor's action violated Warren's First Amendment speech rights. The federal judge said it could be weeks before he releases a decision. And pointing out that protests are an essential way for citizens to petition their elected officials, dozens of people appeared at a State Department of Management Services meeting this week to challenge a proposal that would restrict the way protests can be conducted at Florida's Capitol Complex. Coming up on Capitol Report. It would seem that citrus is no longer the most in-demand crop in the state of Florida. I think every cannabis company in the country wants to plant a flag in Florida. I mean, it's a very large state. We have a lot of retirees here. You know, for a cannabis operator, it, it checks a lot of boxes in that regard. We'll embark on a unique fishing trip trying to determine the lingering impact of 2010's Deepwater Horizon oil spill on the species that inhabit the Gulf of Mexico. You know, you bring the fish to the boat, you think you're ready, you grab the leader. Yeah, that's, that should be good. You're not paying attention. The fish now jerks on the leader, you break the leader. 
and we'll learn that the traditional ways of Florida's Seminole tribe are still finding resonance in a new generation. Florida is poised to double the size of its medical marijuana industry. A 2017 law requires the state health department to grant new licenses as the number of patients increases. In the Deeper Dive with Derek Cam podcast from City and State Florida, attorney and cannabis law expert John Lockwood discusses expanding Florida's market under what's known as the industry's vertical integration system. Here's an excerpt. We have right now 22 uh, licensed medical marijuana treatment centers. That's the name that the, uh, the operators have. The state is poised to have to double this, the, the size of the industry. You and I were chatting a little bit uh, before we started recording about what some of the inherent problems might be in expanding Florida's market under the under the framework that we have right now. We have vertical integration. That means the MMTCs. I'm sure our lead, our listeners are really sophisticated, and I'm sure they know all this. But let's just go over sure. it anyway. Um, they the operators have to grow, process, and retail or dispense uh, products. Um, all it's called vertical integration. Very controversial, but it does make it a little bit more difficult um, for it does. Increase the cost, right. Makes it more expensive. Yeah. So the states, the number of licenses under state law is supposed to increase as the number of patients grows. We're approaching 800,000 patients right now. So the state should have um, issued another 22 licenses plus one that's earmarked for a black farmer. We'll come back to that in a moment. Tell me what's the what is the landscape in Florida? How desirable of a market is it right now for investors and is that going to change? There's a lot to unwrap from from that. Um you know, the state hasn't issued any cannabis licenses in, in a number of years. We've got the law that ties it to you know, patient population. So you're right. Today we're at a, a scenario where there's, <clears throat> I think when I saw the report on Friday, we were around 770,000 patients uh, approaching 800. That would trigger another four licenses in the state. You know, interest in the state of Florida, I think every cannabis company in the country wants to plant a flag in Florida. I mean, it's a very large state. We have a lot of retirees here. You know, for a cannabis operator, it, it checks a lot of boxes in that regard. You know, the flip side of that is it's a very large state, so <laughs> it requires a lot of capital for someone to come into the state, get up and operational. It takes a lot of time. And right now we're in a scenario of it's just difficult for these operators to find capital. You know, everything you're reading about now is it's, it's difficult. Used to, you know, there was a lot of eager people that were looking to move into this industry, and a lot of them did, and a lot of them lost a lot of money. And I think that that's kind of created this stigma that it's difficult for an investor to find their way, you know, within this industry. So 
I don't know with the 2226 licenses that it's a great time for the state really. I think what they're going to find is the quality of applicants that they have in the state. You know, a lot of the the really good operators that are out of state may actually just stay out of this round because and and I've talked to several that have said, "Look, if I had a license right now, I don't have the money to divert to Florida to build this thing out. Huh. I would love to, but I just I can't find the money." And so I think there's this, you know, a lot of people that aren't very familiar with the industry think that there's all these rich investors out there that are always looking to move money in the state. But the reality is, is if we have 22 to 26 licenses, that's going to require a minimum of one and a half to two billion dollars of capital to get all of those licensees up and operational. You know, that's a lot of money. And then when you deploy that kind of capital, those operators are going to need to generate a minimum 50 to 100 million dollars a year in revenue just in order to get some kind of decent ROI for what they've expended in the state. And so you have a couple of things there, just the the mere fact of there's not enough investment money to go around. And then is the market that big that we can, you know, support 46, 48 licenses in the state and then some. That was attorney and cannabis law expert John Lockwood in an excerpt from the Deeper Dive with Derek Ham podcast, a product of City and State, Florida. You can hear the full episode wherever you get your podcasts. The risk from oil spills along with warming waters caused by climate change have scientists worried about one of the nation's most bountiful fishing grounds, New research into the lasting effects of oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico has found that even low levels of oil can make one of the ocean's most popular fish more likely to die within a week of exposure. WLRN's Jenny Stiletovich reports. <laughs> Getting by on him? Yeah. In 2019, a team of researchers from the University of Miami Rosenstiel School took a three-week summer fishing trip to the northern Gulf of Mexico, which sounds pretty fun. Good shot, shot, Martin! Nice shot! Fuck yeah! Fishing day after day, eating fresh wahoo for breakfast. But the goal of the trip was actually very serious. The scientists wanted to find out if oil spills in the Gulf, like the 2010 BP Deepwater Horizon explosion, can cause lasting damage for fish, in particular on mahi-mahi, or dolphin fish, one of the Gulf's most important fish both economically and ecologically. We know that oil impacts these systems. What we don't know is how much that matters to the wild populations. Martin Grossell is a UM ichthyologist whose lab conducted the research. And with environmental disasters like this, what we ultimately care about is ecosystem function. We want to know if oyster harvesting, for example, is going to be sustainable. We want to know if the marine mammals are going to be okay for the decades to come after this bill. BP's Macondo Well, named for the cursed town in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, dumped more than 3 million barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. The catastrophic spill fouled water for miles, killing whales, turtles, seabirds, and oysters. Scientists believe the oil killed between 2 and 5 trillion fish. Grissel's been investigating the damage for the last decade. He's already found that young lab-bred mahi exposed to non-lethal levels of oil can have their hearts, vision, and hearing damaged. 
it's very rare that we have the opportunity to then test whether those extrapolations really does matter or really does predict what's going on in the wild. It's rare because ocean research can be complicated with all the variables at play. The time of year matters, depth matters, the presence of other stressors will matter. And expensive. I'd rather not disclose exactly how much this particular experiment costs, but it, it, it's one of the more, well, it's the most expensive experiment I've ever done. The money for this project came from the $17 billion BP settlement deal. The trip also gave the team a chance to look at how climate change and warmer water are taking a toll on wild fish. Temperature can change how they spawn and even worsen the effects of oil. For the experiment, Grossell's team planned on catching a bunch of wild mahi and putting them in tanks on a boat for 12 hours. Half would go in oil-contaminated water that mimicked the spill. The other half would go in untainted water. Then they'd all be tagged with satellite trackers to record their location, speed, depth, and temperature and let go. Sounds easy, right? But it, it is not. It is not. That's partly because UM's 96-foot-long research vessel was not built to catch one of the fastest fish in the ocean. It's slow and hard to maneuver, even with the best of captains, and we had one of those. So the plan was for Grossell to captain a fishing boat sailing alongside the research vessel, find the mahi, then radio back his location. They'd use the fishing boat to catch the fish, then transfer them to the research vessel, except... You cannot transfer these fish out of the water. That's impossible. Right. Mahi are real wimps when you take them out of the water. That is their home court. And the minute you remove them from there, they, that, that's challenging. So how do you catch a fish if you can't take it out of the water? You don't. Instead, once somebody hooked the mahi on the fishing boat, they'd switch the line to a rod on the research vessel. To do that, they'd secure the line to a tennis ball, toss the tennis ball to the fishing boat, and switch the part of the line attached to the hook mahi, called the leader. Then they'd use a sling to load the fish into a tank on the research vessel. That could be done in a matter of five minutes. That's if everything worked as planned. And then there are all the cases where you know you bring the fish to the boat, you think you're ready, you grab the leader. Yeah, that's, that should be good. You're not paying attention. to there's now jerks on the leader, you break the leader. Or the people on the research vessel trying to hit the sports fishing vessel with a tennis ball missing. Oh, at a critical moment, lines getting tangled. Uh, so we got very good at it at the end, um, but, but it was a very steep learning curve. When they started seeing the monitoring results, it confirmed their worst fears. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a tougher life out there than it is in the, in the lab. And you can see the effects of these environmental challenges much more clearly in the wild. The trackers showed mahi exposed to oil were just half as likely to survive within a week of their release compared to those not exposed to oil. Most mahi are killed by other bigger fish eating them. And remember, the lab fish had their vision and hearing impaired. So imagine trying to escape, say, a marlin or a sailfish or a shark if you're blind and deaf. The mahi exposed to oil also stopped spawning. One of the reasons mahi are such a great food source is because they spawn all the time. Females in the wild release eggs every couple of weeks. Males release sperm even more frequently. But for the 37 days the mahi were monitored, the ones exposed to oil didn't spawn once. It's important to remind people what happened and that it hasn't gone away. Catherine Uden is the South Florida representative for Oceana. It just goes to show that there are so many long-lasting effects 
from fish to sea turtles to dolphins. It's why Oceana and 14 other nonprofits are opposing a federal proposal to expand drilling in the Gulf that's now open for public comment. The other problem is climate change. Deep water fish that feed on the surface don't do well in warmer water. For mahi, about 86 degrees is a tipping point. Those temperatures already regularly occur in the Gulf in August and September. Hotter water also leads to bigger and longer-lasting dead zones when there's less oxygen in the water. Warmer water also worsens the damage from oil, and there's no way to avoid it once a spill happens. Uh, so a spill 20 years from now um, is, is going to be much more impactful than the one we saw in 2010. So I think the, the, the game is to try and avoid these spills uh, rather than respond to them. But that's unlikely, since there's no plan to stop drilling in the Gulf. It is very easy to point fingers at the oil industry here and say they're the bad guys, they caused this environmental disaster. Um, but uh, the oil spill happens because we rely on fossil fuel. Climate change is happening because we burn fossil fuel. And the only way to stop drilling is to stop using fossil fuel. I'm Jenny Stiletovich in Miami. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week... More than 3,000 members of the Seminole Tribe of Florida live on six reservations throughout the state, with nearly 700 living on the Big Cypress Reservation. Their way of life today remains a mystery to many who visit and live in Florida. WGCU's Tara Callaghan speaks with members of the Seminole Tribe of Florida about how they continue to educate non-natives about their legacy. The Seminole Tribe of Florida is a collection of people whose ancestors have been living in what became the state for over 10,000 years, yet tribe members are still answering antiquated questions. Where are the teepees? Do you guys go to grocery stores? Where are the men in loincloths? Just common tropes that people see on TV. Um, That's kind of why I'm glad I'm in the position that I'm in. That's Chandler DeMeo, a member of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. At 20 years old, he works as an educator at the Big Cypress Reservation's Athothaki Museum. He grew up on the Hollywood Reservation and went to school in the city, so questions about his Seminole heritage aren't new. It's a little shocking at first, but I take pride in the fact that people can leave this facility and this reservation and maybe take a little bit more um, knowledge and have a different way of thinking when they leave here. If you're still wondering about the teepees, Seminoles traditionally use a chicky style of architecture, which is a palmetto thatched roof over a cypress log frame. DeMeo explains that chickies aren't only for shelter. Cooking chickies are kind of like the heart of the camp. Uh, when camps are set up, all the other um, chickies are pointed at it like an arrow. But if you look at cooking chickies, they're the only ones that are built different because they have a pocket on the let the smoke out. Trying to make a quick fire and get things, you know, the fire stoked quicker. Right. Under the cooking chicky, Carla Cypress of the Panther Clan is making a dish called Indian stew over an open flame. It consists of beef boiled until tender with flour dumplings in a seasoned broth. Cypress says she spent her entire life on the reservation and that she prefers to live a more traditional lifestyle. Modern ways is okay, but I feel more grounded when I'm closer to what I grew up around and my grandmother's watching them cook and smelling the oil or fire on their dresses and that familiarity and and I just want to be like my grandma's too one day. 
Cyprus encourages anyone to visit the reservation and the Atathaki Museum to experience what Seminole life is really yep. about. We invite everybody to enjoy where we come from, which is the Everglades, like all of it. Know that we're here and we're still maintaining and we're still here. There's an estimated 575 tribes in the United States today, all with different beliefs, languages, and traditions. DeMeo says he enjoys changing people's perspectives on how they view indigenous people. So for us, I just try to tell people that we don't live a certain way. This is my culture. This is my history. These are my people. So I'm fortunate enough that our museum has tribal members that are able to go out and educate the public telling our narrative. The Athothaki Museum on the Big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation is open to visitors seven days a week, featuring educational and historical exhibits and a mile-long boardwalk leading to Seminole ceremonial grounds and a living village. This is Tara Calligan in Big Cypress. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Jenny Stolotovich, Derek Cam, and Tara Calligan. Technical assistance for Capital Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Join us again next week for more reports from the state capitol. Capital Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.